this time of year we think about 2016, we reflect back on last year, the lessons of last year. We think ahead for planning for 2017. In 2016-10, 10 of our aging ministers died, and one of our minister's wives died. And so we look forward to the last trumpet when the resurrection takes place. We realize they're asleep in Jesus, and we look forward to their resurrection. We also reflect back on the Feast of Tabernacles in 2016. Hurricane Matthew caused the closure of the feast in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God allowed the closure of that feast site. Was there any good that came from it? Well, the challenge led to an emergency fee site here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And it appears that God is helping us to prepare for other emergencies that may come along in the future. Our church team here in Charlotte performed very well. So many of you helped out and worked very hard to make it such a success on a short period of time. This is the uh, January-February 2017 Living Church News. We just received ours in the mail at our home here just a week or so ago. Uh, how many of you have received the, the Living Church News? Good. Well, looks like about 90% of you. And, of course, it has uh, Dr. Meredith's uh, lead, We Must Become Family. It also has a report on the festivals the Feast of Tabernacles 2016, just the report here in Charlotte. God's church in the United States experienced something new this year. A feast site was canceled because of a hurricane, Hurricane Matthew. And at the direction of the leadership, less than a week before the feast started, the decision was made to have an emergency pop-up site. So we organized the Feast of Tabernacles in Charlotte. With about 200 people attending, the air was really buzzing with excitement and energy an amazing positive atmosphere. We all work together to encourage one another and build one another up. Notice the attitude there. You're buzzing with excitement and energy and an amazing positive atmosphere. We all work together to encourage one another and build one another up. By working together, God's people took a bad situation, pulled together, and made it a wonderful and memorable experience. It became what was, for many, the best feast we've ever had. Uh, by the way, I maybe shouldn't mention, but the light keeps going off and on, and it just seems that the last time I spoke was in the dark in Charlotte. All the lights went out, but now it's improved, and it's just dimming and growing bright. Well, But we'll uh, persevere in any case. Then on page 32, we have the uh, report of the storm of the century that was attacking the seaside Oregon fee site. And Mr. Brandon Fall writes, following the hurricane on the east coast that caused the closure of Hilton Head's fee site, the meteorologists were predicting the storm of the century on the other side of the country as the tail end of a powerful typhoon was scheduled to hit the Pacific Northwest. As many brethren were traveling to seaside for the feast, hurricane-level winds and resulting widespread power outages were forecast for the weekly Sabbath of October 15th. So you can read about the miracle that took place at the hurricane with the storm of the century was heading right store the seaside, 
and split and went two distant directions around the fee site, and the meteorologists are still puzzled to this day. They're trying to figure out what happened. But we thank God for his intervention, and we realize that, yes, he is with us. In one case, the feast was closed in the East Coast, and on the other side of the nation, uh, God intervened to let the feast go, even in spite of the threat of a storm of the century. We all need courage and faith to do God's work in this end time. We are living in dangerous times. And just a few weeks ago, on January 26, 2017, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved its famous doomsday clock 30 seconds closer to midnight, symbolizing the increasing danger of global nuclear devastation. And when it gets to zero, that means total annihilation of all human life. The New York Times reported at two and a half minutes before midnight, this is, quote, the closest the clock had been to midnight since 1953, the year after the United States and Soviet Union conducted competing tests of the hydrogen bomb, end of quote. By the way, the hydrogen bomb is still around, by the way. So we are living in dangerous times, and we need God's faith, And as we prepare for the Passover, of course, we need to be examining ourselves, and we'll be probably hearing more sermons about that as we get closer to the Passover. But we need to examine our attitude toward life, toward God, and toward the future. What kind of an attitude do you have? What attitude will you have from now on until the Passover? We need to have character, faith, courage, Boldness in the faith as we look forward to 2017 and beyond. Take a look at the Sermon on the Mount. If you'll turn to Matthew, the fifth chapter. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Here we have Jesus' explanations of attitude. These are the descriptions of characteristics of true Christians. What kinds of biblical attitude Will you reflect in the days, weeks, and months ahead? What is your attitude now? The title of the sermon today is Springtime Attitudes. Jesus instructed his followers to have what is called the Beatitudes, which is just another way of saying beautiful attitudes. So let's just read them briefly. Matthew, the fifth chapter, starting with verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up, in, went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, God gives us his spirit. We need his spirit. There's a difference between being poor in spirit and the meek. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not in heaven but the kingdom of heaven. So over the years, we've given sermons and had many articles 
um, virtually on all of these uh, Beatitudes. At the Living Youth Camp in Ohio, one of the one year we had uh, the uh, morning Bible studies went over each of the Beatitudes uh, every morning. We realize that mainstream Christianity thinks it's observing the Beatitudes, and yet when it comes to righteousness, it doesn't have the God's righteousness, which means the Ten Commandments and His whole way of life and God's law of love. Before we go into the springtime attitudes, I'd like to encourage all of you, of course, to take time. I'm not going to uh, expound on the Beatitudes today, but I would like to encourage all of you to Sometime, just sit down and uh, take a look at the Beatitudes and read very slowly and take one Beatitude or one attitude at a time. Think about it and how it reflects and operates in your own life. Before we get into the springtime attitudes, let's take a look at what worldly attitudes we need to avoid. There are carnal attitudes and carnal means fleshly, and it's opposed to spiritual. One of the greatest indicators of a person's degree of maturity is that of attitude. Some time ago, we were at a restaurant for lunch, and one of the employees referred to one of the uncooperative managers as having an attitude, a definition of attitude. Uh, This is uh, from Google. Uh, several different definitions, but this one, North American informal attitude about attitude. Truculent or uncooperative behavior, a resentful or antagonistic manner. Quote, I asked the waiter for a clean fork, and all I got was attitude. So I think all of you have experienced that in your life sometime or other. Of course, the positive def- def- definition is, a settled way of thinking or feeling about something or someone, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. So we want to have godly attitudes, and of course we find that from God's Word. Calvin and Hobbes were discussing the subject of of attitude, and Calvin, of course, is the precocious boy, and Hobbes the uh, very intelligent and uh, normal uh, tiger, So Calvin and Hobbes are walking along, and Calvin says, You know what we need, Hobbes? We need an attitude. And Hobbes says, An attitude? And Calvin says, Yeah, you can't be cool if you don't have an attitude. And and, uh, Hobbes looks rather pensively and says, Really? And then Calvin says, Sure, they're all the rage. Now, what kind of attitude could we have? So Hobbes says, we could be courteously differential, he says with a smile. And then Hobbes says sarcastically, oh, good, that's real cool. So he didn't like the kind of attitude that was normal. He wanted to have the kind of carnal attitude that was the rage. Uh, Years ago at Ambassador College, uh, we had uh, an expression called uh, B.A. Uh, that, <laughs> that person has a B.A. You know, he has a bad attitude. We well, have to be careful when you make those kinds of judgments uh, because sometimes uh, you 
uh, use that as an excuse not to understand a criticism uh, that may be appropriate for your own uh, behavior. So we all have to make sure that we examine our attitudes. We all have bad attitudes from time to time. Oh, you don't? Oh, that's news to me. But no, we all need to examine our, our attitudes. And particularly when we look forward to the days of unleavened bread, we think about an unleavened attitude, an attitude of sincerity and truth. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We all read that in Matthew 5 and verse 8. So how pure is your heart? We had a sermon number 504, Developing a Godly Heart. Thinking about the attitudes in the world, there was a movie in 1963, Hollywood produced the movie titled, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. And truly we are inundated with crazy, carnal messages every day. And we've got to be alert to resist those wrong attitudes, because Satan certainly is surcharging the airwaves looking for susceptible carnal minds. But when it comes to describing attitudes, the list is almost endless. You think of arrogance, selfishness, vanity, lust, greed, jealousy, envy. Turn to Second Timothy, the third chapter, the scripture you're all familiar with, but it describes our day and age and the attitudes of our day and age. Second Timothy, the third chapter, verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, selfishness, lovers of money, greed, and covetousness, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away. Turn to Revelation, the uh, 21st chapter, 21. So we here see attitudes that are prevalent and we can recognize them. I hope that all of us recognize them even in our daily walk. Thankfully, there are normal people that have grown up with the Judeo-Christian ethic, and our Bible-believing people, and are courteous and normal and respectful and kind, because uh, carnal nature is a human nature, is a combination of good and of evil. But here in Revelation, the 21st chapter, we find even those attitudes that are going to require severe and eternal punishment. Revelation 21. And starting in verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Well, this is a very serious warning. And last night uh, we had the Bible study, the Living Youth Program uh, Bible study on the last great day, part two. Mr. Sheldon Munson gave that Bible study and spent some time on the punishment that comes along, which happens after the last great day. You have the millennium, the hundred-year period of the last great day, and then the lake of fire that comes to consume and purify the earth. Uh, by the way, uh, how many of you saw the uh, 
Living Youth Program Bible study last night. See your hands. Okay, good. That looks like about uh, eight or nine of you. I noticed that on the uh, chat list there were people from Charlotte and also from Mississauga, Ontario, Tacoma, Washington, Atlanta, Georgia, Lafayette, Louisiana, Chicago, Illinois, Savannah, Georgia, Columbia, Missouri. So we had uh, one time 259 connections, so that could have been up of upwards of three or 400 people on that. But it was very inspiring in addition to that sobering warning. And this went on, of course, because what happens after the earth is purified? In Revelation 21 and 22, you have the new heavens and the new earth and that beautiful new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. And as uh, Mr. Munson was reading about the various uh, beautiful jewels and gems in verse 19 of Revelation 21, um, Mr. Josh Penman put up on the screen uh, those 12 different beautiful gems, those beautiful jewels. And so we look forward to that wonderful time. And so in verse 7, we have the encouraging comment, Revelation 21, 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But we have here in Revelation 21, 7, those carnal attitudes, if not repented of, but become sealed in a person's wicked and evil and rebellious character, uh, that person is going to be consumed, will experience the second death, which means never to be resurrected again, permanent death. But we must exemplify godly attitudes and overcome worldly attitudes. What attitudes do you have problems with? I've had problems with anger in the past, and we heard in the sermonette about Dr. Douglas Winnale's article, Watch Out, I'm Angry which is in the July-August 2006 uh, Living Church News. And so we have to recognize those character weaknesses, those attitudinal weaknesses in our personality, and make sure that we're growing and overcoming and conquering those. And as the Days of Unleavened Bread teach us, that we're replacing the leaven of malice and wickedness with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. With God's help, we're growing in a pure heart, in a right attitude. And it takes a lifetime to do that. And I know when I think about some of us who are octogenarians, well, why does God let us live so long? Well, because it takes me, I think, I'm just thinking about this this morning. It's just taking me some time, a longer time to learn some lessons that others would learn in, you know, in their 20s or 30s. But some character flaws are yet to be challenged and must be conquered and overcome and replaced with God's nature. So do you have problems with anger or jealousy or phobias or fearfulness or impatience? I think we all have problems with impatience. Frustration. Do you ever recognize those worldly attitudes and try to overcome them? Romans the 8th chapter, Romans 8 describes the core of human nature. Romans, the 8th chapter, of course, the prominence of the whole chapter is the Holy Spirit chapter, the most inspiring chapter, perhaps, in the Bible, among many other inspiring chapters. But here is a truth about human nature. Romans 8, verse 7. 
because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. The NIV says the sinful mind is hostile to God. The RSC says the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. So then those who are in the flesh, verse 8, cannot please God. Well, we're all in the flesh, but he's transitioning this to meaning in the attitude of a fleshly attitude or a spiritual attitude. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So we ought to overcome that carnal human nature. We know that's one of our missions in life. We have to be overcomers. We have to recognize our own carnal nature and make sure that we can identify those flaws and those weaknesses and have a determination with God's help to replace the leaven of malice and wickedness or human nature with God's divine nature. And parents need to deal with wrong attitudes with their children as well. Dr. Jeffrey Fall, in his booklet, Successful Parenting, Chapter 3, writes the following, Every parent who has disciplined a child has likely found at times that the child was crying not from sorrow or repentance, but from obvious anger. Anger is like a muscle. The more it is exercised, the more it will develop. If a child's anger is not addressed, the necessary lesson will not be learned, and nothing will be gained by a hardening of the child's attitude. In this circumstance, it becomes necessary to remind the child why he was disciplined in the first place and then explain he will also be disciplined for his attitude of anger, which would be an additional element of punishment. In most cases, the child's attitude will change quickly and his cry will turn more to a repentant spirit than to a rebellion or anger. And I know as a boy, I was playing that game because I knew when I was being disciplined and I was crying, I I knew my mother had a a technique of when I was crying, she would give me cold water and I would stop crying. But I didn't want to stop crying. So when my mother would bring me the water, I would just kind of refuse the water so I could keep on crying. I just wanted to keep on crying. What a carnal attitude. But at least my mother knew there's one strategy she could use to help me to stop crying. But we have other attitudes we need to overcome, the carnal mind. We need to overcome self-righteousness as well. Of course, we had the sermon last week by uh, Mr. Wallace Smith on insights from Job and realizing, of course, Job had great lessons to learn. We had a sermon by Mr. Rod King on self-righteousness, sermon number 405. And then what other kinds of attitudes do we need to overcome? Self-justification. I won't take the time to go through that, but the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, verses 25, Jesus said, told the story, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this, and you will live. But he, the Samaritan, I mean, sorry, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
Then Jesus gave the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So do you try to justify yourself? Or do you realize, yes, I, yes, I am guilty. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Or do you try to justify yourself? But you don't understand. You know, this is an A, B, and C. You know, he was, he was angry at me. So that's why I punched him in the nose. You know, you, you have a justification for your actions. Mr. D. Barapartian had an article in the uh, January, February 2010 uh, Living Church News titled, A Question of Attitude. He listed quite a few of those uh, questionable attitudes. One, finding fault continually. I mentioned a church member we had uh, many years ago, not in uh, Charlotte, uh, some other area of the country, uh, that was, was criticizing all our church members. He was a church member. But he was finding fault. I called him a self-appointed spot remover. He finally removed himself from the congregation. He was so critical. Doctor, uh, Mr. Partian goes on, being unwilling to forgive. We had the fine sermonette by Mr. Tabor uh, showing that we need to forgive as a response to God's forgiveness of us. Feeling sorry for yourself. Feeling holier than thou. Mr. Partian concludes in that article, um, quote, Start the change now. Do not put it off. Your attitude is the key to making you a Christian after God's own heart. It will unlock before you the door to the kingdom of God. So we need to overcome and identify worldly attitudes, and uh, we all have human nature. And if any one of you does not display one of those carnal attitudes from time to time, let me know. You must be an angel unawares. The rest, remainder of the sermon, I'm going to give you uh, several springtime attitudes, and depending on how much time we have, well, we have a lot of time, so I should get through all ten. Number one, what kind of attitudes do we need to develop? And of course, these ten are just a sampling. There are many other godly attitudes, biblical attitudes. We already read through the Beatitudes in Matthew, the fifth chapter. But consider this, and this, of course, was emphasized even in the sermonette. Number one, an attitude of humility. Let's turn to Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians 2 and verse 8. Philippians 2 and verse 8. Talking about Christ himself. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We understand the example that Christ set for each and every one of us, that he humbled himself, gave up that glory that he had from eternity, was as the Logos that was with with the Father, the one who became the Father, gave that up to come down to this earth so that God could start a plan of salvation of reproducing himself. Mr. Armstrong in the book, Mystery of the Ages, gives that purpose in those three words, uh, four words, God is reproducing himself. Those four words, about eight to ten times in the book, Mystery of the Ages. I even heard him uh, on a radio program. Someone gave me an old radio broadcast of Mr. Armstrong, and I was su- surprised he said that to the whole world. And yet it is an amazing truth the world is blinded to. 
What is God doing? What is happening all over the world? All the crime and violence and wars. What is going on? God is giving human beings 6,000 years. In fact, I think we have the article here on God's 7,000-year plan. God is giving human beings 6,000 years to learn the lessons they would learn no other way because they have free moral agency. and They don't want to be told what to do. And they have to learn through experience by choosing, by making decisions and realizing my decision wasn't the right one. God's way is the best way. And at the same time, God will comfort those come up in the white throne judgment who are the victims of the Holocaust and victims of other oppression. He will take them up in His arms, it says in Isaiah, like lambs in His arms, and He will comfort them. What an awesome plan God has for all of mankind. And so Christ Himself humbled Himself so that plan could be put into effect. We have on March 18th, as you heard, announced a church-wide fast, so we'll also have an opportunity to humble ourselves and that date as well. John, the 13th chapter, is across the year life experience we give every Passover season with the washing of feet ceremony, following the example of Christ. John 13, as he had washed his disciples' feet, He said in verse 13, John 13, verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. But why is it that modern... Mainstream Christianity as a whole does not follow that example. That yet they purport to follow their servant, their master, calling me a master. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Most assuredly I say to you, the servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent me. Sent him. John 13, verse 13. John, uh, James the fourth chapter, James 4. So we have the awesome example of our Savior who created all things. God created all things, all the universe. He has all power in the universe. He sustains the universe by the word of His power. That's one of the translations have it in Hebrews, the first chapter. He has that power, and yet He humbled Himself, coming in the form of a servant. James, the fourth chapter, we have what are called the two initiatives. Verse 8, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What kind of an attitude? I recognize in myself a double-mindedness sometimes, Not thankfully not as often as it should be. I mean, <laughs> thankfully I recognize it more often than I, I don't have the double-mindedness, in other words, as, as often as I used to have, thankfully. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord 
and he will lift you up. So we must do that from time to time, even fasting, which we will be doing, but I hope that all of you have done perhaps fast at least a day since the Day of Atonement uh, last last year. One uh, other scripture here, Isaiah 66. Isaiah the 66th chapter. We have uh, sermon number 219, a repentant attitude, and number 268, a teachable attitude. Dr. Meredith had an article on the uh, January-February 2010 Living Church News, Are You Truly Humble? Dear brethren, let us so live our lives now that God who knows our hearts will see that we truly intend to serve Him, honor Him, and obey Him throughout all eternity, no matter what the cost. Through our thoughts, prayers, words, and actions, we must let God and our fellow man know that we are here to serve. Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66 and verse 1. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me and where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made and all these things exist, says the Eternal. Verse 2, the end of verse 2, But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, a human being who recognizes the love, the supremacy, the omnipotence, the omniscience, and the omnipresence of God Almighty and His love, that He is love. 1 John 4, verse 8, and 1 John 4, verse 18. And He is Spirit. John 4, verse 24. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. But on this one will I look to Him as poured of a contrite spirit and trembles at My word and realizes that the Scriptures are God's word from heaven to you and to me. They are his revelation to humanity. And even the Apostle Paul, when he was in Athens, when he was trying to educate the Athenians about this unknown God, he said, this God, whom your own poets have say, have his own, have offspring. And now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. Well, that was Paul's message in Acts, the 17th chapter. And that's the same message that's true today. And we are giving that message as God gives us the open door to the world, that everyone must repent in this day and age. They're not going to. They're getting a witness to that. And some are repenting, of course, as God calls them. So number one, Springtime attitude is an attitude of humility. One more scripture along that line, and you're very familiar with it. Micah 6 and verse 8. Micah 6 and verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the eternal require of you? But to do justly, 
And if you want to do justly, then you need to read through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that give the statutes, the judgments, and God's commandments. To do justly, to love mercy. And he tells us in Hebrews 4.16 to come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain grace and mercy in time of need. To love mercy. You want God to show you mercy, but you are showing mercy to others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. That's God's requirement. We've had old sermons on that. So do you have an attitude of humility? Turn to 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, for a springtime attitude number 2, which is an attitude of repentance. 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. When was the last time you shed a tear over anything you did wrong? I know sometimes we call them mistakes that we make because they aren't outright sins, and yet it can be damaging to property, to uh, injury to ourselves or to others. But we need to have that attitude of repentance. And here in First uh, Corinthians, seventh chapter. Um, sorry, Second Corinthians, the seventh chapter because this is responding or commenting on the response of the Corinthians to his first corrective letter. 2 Corinthians 7. We'll start here in uh, verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. He thought he might have overdone it in his correction. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. So there's a difference between godly sorrow and normal, carnal sorrow. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So what are the characteristics of godly sorrow? What are the fruits of godly sorrow? And have you experienced this ever in your life? For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. In other words, whatever habit or a wrong behavior pattern you had at one time or another, you've totally changed. You don't do that anymore. And you can, you're predictable. You don't respond with anger anymore as you used to. You count to ten or you just say thank you as I do to my wife, you know, instead of arguing. Clearing of ourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, What vindication in all things you prove yourselves to be clear in this matter. They took the correction. They changed their attitude because their attitude was one of enlightenment. You know, we have enlightened tolerance. You know, we tolerate all the um, immorality within the congregation and 
And we can tolerate that because we're mature people. No, uh, they were tolerating sin. And that's why the Apostle Paul had to correct them so strongly in that, in that first epistle. We talked about Job's repentance, but let's just turn back there briefly to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. And we had uh, quite a few insights in the sermon last week by Mr. Wallace Smith. And uh, Job had an intellectual concept of God. He realized God was existed. And uh, Job answered the eternal and said, verse 2, Job 42, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Now, Job had a lot of scientific knowledge. He knew a lot about uh, construction, apparently. He knew a lot about the uh, animals, but God interrogated him to the point to show him, Job, you think you know something. You really don't know just a fraction of the awesome flora and fauna that I've created. Things too wonderful me which I did not know. Verse 4, listen, please, and let me speak. He said the word please. How often in my prayers I say please to God. Let me speak. You said I will question you and you will answer me. Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Yes, I accept those intellectual proofs in the existence of God. But now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. All of the suffering that Job experienced, he was depending on righteous. He was righteous. But he was attributing that righteousness not to God as a source of that righteousness. Of course, it tells us, is it in Isaiah 64, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So Job learned an awesome lesson. And Dr. Meredith has been encouraging us to seek God with our whole heart and realize that, yes, who are we and what are we in comparison to the universe? We are specks and even less than a speck. When he says all the nations combined are like a drop in a bucket, And where are we in that drop? But we know that we are important because God values every one of us because he said, Christ shed his blood for us. And that's why you are so extremely valuable in God's sight. God loves every one of us. And he wants to make sure that we will be in his kingdom. That's why he corrects us, loves us. And lets bad things happen to us as we brought out the sermon on Romans 8.28 that will work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. But Job had a deep repentance. He said, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Mr. Armstrong in his autobiography, volume 1, chapter 17, talks about his experience of repentance and baptism. Quote, immediately upon coming up out of the water, I definitely experienced a change in attitude and in mind generally. I had already repented and surrendered to God's rule over my life, 
the natural carnal hostility to God and his law already had gone. Yet now, for the first time, I felt clean. I knew now that the terribly heavy load of sin had been taken off my shoulders. Christ had paid the penalty for me. All past sins were now blotted out by his blood. My conscience conscience was clean, clean and clear. For the first time in my life, I experienced real inner peace of mind. I realized as never before how futile and useless and foolish are the ways of this world on which most people set so much store. There was a quiet, wonderful happiness of mind in the sure knowledge that now I was actually a begotten son of God. I could really call God Father. Thank you. In Psalm 51, I think you know that. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the love of your kind, loving kindness. That was David's psalm of repentance. I'll just read it to you. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, from my iniquity. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is all, always before me. So we need again to ask God to grant us repentance if we haven't repented. And of course, uh, it says in Acts 11 verse 18 that God granted repentance to the Gentiles. So God does grant repentance. And what that means in a sense is that God gives you the ability to see yourself as a sinner. Remember the publican and the Pharisee. And the Pharisees, I thank God that I, I fast twice in the week, give tithes of all I possess. And the publican just beat upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So he realized who and what he was. He was the sinner. God granted him in repentance. In other words, God grants you the ability to see your human nature. And, of course, that's what happened to the Apostle Paul in Romans, the seventh chapter, you can read, uh, turn there briefly. Romans, the seventh chapter. And this is a little difficult for uh, scholarly critics because once saved, always saved. Well, Paul should never have had this attitude. If he was saved, why would he go through this whole idea that he's struggling with his human nature? He shouldn't have to do that. They don't understand. Paul was struggling with his human nature even as an apostle. And so here in Romans, the seventh chapter, starting his expression of repentance. Verse 24, Romans 7. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body, this body of death? I thank God. In other words, that it shall be through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He was struggling with his human nature, but he still had the confidence that Christ would save him and that he could overcome. So number two is an attitude of repentance. Number three is an attitude of service. Is that a part of your character? We already read Philippians 2.5. Well, let's turn back there again, Philippians 2.5. We realize, as I mentioned before, that here in Charlotte, when we had to 
produce an emergency fee site. We had a great teamwork, attitudes of wonderful service from a lot of the brethren. And we just thank you all for that kind of service, and we have a wonderful attitude of service every Sabbath, week after week. So thank you for all those who are serving in so many different ways here at the Sabbath services and in the church. Philippians, the second chapter, Philippians 2. We need an attitude of service. Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, as we we read this later. So he had the attitude of a bond servant. And all of us are bond servants to Christ. We are slaves of righteousness, as it tells us in Romans 6 and in Romans 7. We had a sermon, uh, number 564, Responsiveness and Service. And for those of you who are in my uh, marriage seminar at the uh, family weekend in December, I shared that story with you. But uh, how many of you already know my five-second rule in responding to my wife? How many of you are familiar? Oh, good. You're gradually getting educated. There's around 12, 13% of you know that. But that, that happened so many years. For those of you who haven't heard this story, I've told so many times that we... My wife and I were in a motel traveling somewhere, and she said, well, well, Dick, do you have the manicure set, a little kind of um, manicure set? And uh, I said, looked over at my open suitcase, and there it was. And I grabbed it and threw it to her within five seconds. And so from then on, I decided whenever she asked me for something, I'm going to try to get it to her within five seconds. And... Uh, there are some things that are a little more complicated take more like 10 seconds, but, you know, normally I try to get it to it fairly quickly. Responsiveness and service. So do you respond to those who have needs, praying for those that have needs? We want that attitude of service. Dr. Douglas Winnale in his Living Church News article, Are You a Person After God's Own Heart?, wrote... Uh, the following, the examples of Abraham, Moses, David, Hannah, and many others are recorded in Scripture as examples for us to follow. We must learn from those examples and strive to become people after God's own heart so we can be in his kingdom because this is the real purpose for human existence. So number three, we need to live with an attitude of service. Number four, we need an attitude of actively loving God. Mark, the 12th chapter. Mark 12, I'll be moving along a little more quickly with these next attitudes, springtime attitudes. Mark, the 12th chapter. I like this one because it gives us four different elements of loving God. The others give three. When the lawyer asked him, what is the first and great commandment, Verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like 
Like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So God wants us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because that's a part of a loving, godly nature. 1 John 5, verse 3, you know that as well. What is the love of God? We are to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are to obey him. And we find out here in 1 John 5, verse 3, a definition of God's love. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So there are many ways of loving God, of course, and that's by forgiving, as we heard in the sermonette, but also by living Every day, by every word of God, Matthew 4.4 and Luke 4.4. But also, it requires worship as well. I mentioned that, and I better check on that reference. It was John. I said in my class the other day, in Living University class on Introduction to Biblical Doctrines, that I do my own Bible study during the class, and I will do want to check. I was correct, John 4. Verse 24, just want to do a little Bible study and correct uh, the reference. I was correct, John 4, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so you're open with God. You're very heartfelt with God. You think of all the examples of Moses begging and reasoning with God not to destroy Israel. When God says, Moses, I'll make of you a great people, the people that you've brought out of Egypt. And Moses retorts, well, these are your people, God, whom you brought out of Egypt. And then Abraham, who was negotiating with the Lord who became Jesus Christ, will you not save Sodom if there are 50 righteous people? Will you not save if there are 40, 30, and even 10? So these men were bold. David complains, how long, O Lord, will you take before you deliver me? How long is it going to be before you answer my prayers and my requests and my need? So these men were heartfelt. They were men after God's own heart. God is not threatened by your complaint. He knows who and what we are. But he wants us to be heartfelt and actively love him and to worship him in spirit and in truth. And one of the ways, of course, is thanking God, uh, which goes on to our next one. I could spend a lot more time. Well, let's take one more scripture on an attitude of actively loving God. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Because in a sense... This is feedback to you. Am I really worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Ephesians 5, verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, how do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? Well, you ask God. He's promised to give you the Spirit. Luke 11, uh, Luke 11 verse 13. If we, being evil, give good gifts unto our children, how much more will your heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Ephesians 5, verse 19. Here are some of the characteristics of those filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns 
and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So, do you ever thank God? Do you ever sing to God? In fact, we'll go on then to number five. Number four is the attitude of actively loving God. Number five is the attitude of thanksgiving. And so he says, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father. Verse 20, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think I've told you before one time, I don't know what the incident was, but it was something in which I was very thankful to God, and I just said, instead of thank you, I said, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I still do from time to time, and I just, I don't count how many thank yous I say, but there are more than a few, because I really mean it. So here are some of the characteristics of being filled with the Spirit, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And one of them, of course, is the attitude of thanksgiving. Let's go to uh, Colossians, the second chapter, Colossians 2. Mr. Peter Nathan gave a sermon here in Charlotte on November 26, 2016. What do you mean, Thanksgiving? Colossians 2. So if uh, you did not hear the sermon, he's here today. You can go ahead and ask him. Colossians 2 and uh, verse 6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. You're living a way of life, rooted and built up in Him. Rooted and built in Him. In other words, it isn't surface. You have a deep, abiding, continual relationship, not a haphazard, inconsistent relationship, but one that is consistent every day rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now he tells us, I won't turn there. The opposite, of course, of thanksgiving is complaining. And I won't turn there, but Philippians 2.14, do all things without complaining and disputing. I think our uh, our Sabbath school uh, children have learned that one. I think, uh, yes, okay, Mrs. Lyons is saying, yes, they know. Colossians 2.14, do all things without complaining and disputing, or the King James, do all things without murmurings and disputing. NIV, do everything without complaining or arguing. The opposite of that, of course, is being thankful. I wrote a poem, I hesitate to share it with you, but I uh, wrote a poem called Another Prayer of Thanksgiving, uh, January 15, 2011. And you might write a poem. Thank you for the wind and rain. Thank you for the hills and plain. Thank you for the sky above. Thank you for eternal love. Thank you for the coming King. To Him we pray, we love and sing. Thank you for the words you say. The world at peace in your great day. We had a wife of uh, one of our living church God ministers who was going through quite a bit of trials, and I think she heard a sermon about writing down things to be thankful for. And she told me, this was after a couple years of 
her writing down these things, that she wrote down every day consistently five things that she were to be thankful for. And when she told me, she had written down 2,500 things to be thankful for. Because she had gone through quite severe trials. Her mother died, her brother uh, died in other circumstances. And I recall, and she said, being thankful had really helped her through those trials. So we look forward to the Passover and look to Romans, the 8th chapter, Romans 8. And we realize, yes, the greatest blessings to be thankful for are the sacrifice of Christ. And it says here in Romans, the 8th chapter, God's evidence, overwhelming evidence of his love toward us. Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God has given us the promise of all things, given us redemption, given us grace, given us forgiveness, givenness. So summary number five, attitude, live your life with an attitude of thanksgiving. Number six, live your life with an attitude of faith. Dr. Meredith has been encouraging us to build our faith and to grow in faith. I won't turn there, but Matthew 6, verse 30, Jesus said to his audience, O you of little faith, so you can have faith in little degrees, But are you strong in faith, as he says about Abraham? I believe that's in uh, Romans 4. Being strong in faith. We need to grow in faith. Turn to Proverbs, the uh, third chapter, Proverbs 3. Here we're instructed to trust God. And here is the fundamental faith that we all should have. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the eternal with all your heart. In other words, I shared that with you before, but one time when Dr. C. Paul Meredith, an evangelist who died back in uh, the 1960s, someone was challenged, why did God allow this to happen to my family? Well, Job could have said the same thing, but Dr. Meredith simply said, Dr. C. Paul Meredith, God knows what he's doing. I think we covered those dimensions in the sermon on Romans 8 and verse 28. You realize all the tragedies that had happened, the tragedy of Joseph, when his father thought his beloved son had been devoured by a lion and said, I will go down to the grave in sorrow. The tragedy. And yet God had a greater purpose for selling Joseph into Egypt as a slave, then spending years in prison, and then having been disappointed when the baker finally uh, is restored to Pharaoh, and Joseph says, you know, Mr. Baker, uh, please tell Pharaoh about my telling you the interpretation of your dream and how you were restored. Well, the, the baker forgets. 
And so Joseph spends two more years in prison. God allowed that for a purpose. And so right here, this, this very verse, brethren, is key to it's your faith. Trust in the eternal with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. So we need to live by an attitude of faith. And, of course, along that line means we're abiding by positive attitudes. We've had sermons on have a positive attitude. Dr. Meredith and his Seven Laws of Radiant Health many years ago had written about have maintain a positive attitude. And one of the time he had maintain a tranquil mind. Well, we make choices. Sometimes we choose to be zealous. It's just like the uh, LYC camp. No, I guess that was the SEP campers and uh, one of the one of the camp uh, counselors, a young lady, said, uh, "Well, what are all these? They want my my campers to cheer, and they don't feel like cheering. <laughs> so why should I make them cheer?" So, you know, isn't that hypocritical? No, you make a choice. You choose to be positive or you choose to be negative. And, and I won't, well, while I'm there, Proverbs, just turn over the page. Uh, Proverbs 1 uh, in verse 29, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. You make a choice of whether you want to be enthusiastic. You make a choice of whether you want to fear God. And so I think I covered that in the sermon on character and your emotions. So we need to have a positive attitude and make right choices. Uh, Calvin was trying to make a choice of doing his homework. I like homework. Homework makes me happy. He sits down at the desk. I don't want to go outside. I want to do math problems. And the next scene, he is not an expletive, but he just blasts out and in in uh, in sorrow and uh, anger. Then the final scene, he has his head down in his hands and says, "My brain always rejects attitude transplants." Well, no, our brain should not reject attitude transplants through God's Holy Spirit. We have an attitude of love, joy, peace. Patience, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, self-control, humbleness of mind, bowels of mercies, and compassion. So we need to choose those attitudes. Number six, an attitude of faith. Number seven, attitude of perseverance. Hebrews 12 and verse 1. Hebrews 12 and verse 1. We thank God for those who are the saints who have died in the faith. I mentioned there were Ten ministers in the Living Church of God who died in 2016 and one minister's wife died in the faith. They persevered to the end. Hebrews 12 and verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the men and women of faith, in chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so evilly ensnare us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Yes, with perseverance, with patience, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we have someone that will help us to finish the race. He is the one who is going to be the author and finisher of our faith. We need to continue to persevere. Second uh, Corinthians, the fourth chapter. Second Corinthians, the fourth chapter. Second Corinthians four and verse sixteen. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So as some of us age, we feel aches and pains and slow down a little bit here and there, we realize, yes, the inward man is still being renewed day by day. We're going to persevere to the end, trusting God, Acknowledging Him in all our ways and realizing He is going to direct our path. So be committed to go forward in faith, endure to the end. Matthew 24, verse 13. He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. We have sermon number 925. Actually, we're getting almost up to a 1,000. I think our latest sermons are up around 970 or 980. But sermon number 925 is Philadelphian perseverance. Attitude number seven is persevere. Attitude number eight, the attitude of producing spiritual fruit. You know, I won't turn there, but uh, John 15, eight. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And so God is glorified when we bear much fruit. Of course, we bear fruit because he's the vine and he's working through us and in us as we ask him to. What spiritual fruit, true values do we produce? Galatians 5.22, you know that. The fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We live in the Spirit Let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I was surprised to see that uh, the New King James used the word long-suffering, where the NIV has patience. The King James Version has long-suffering. But when you really think about it, long-suffering means suffering long. And it means that you are patient with someone's problems and idiosyncrasies and maybe uh, offensive behaviors, you're long-suffering, you're patient. We need to bear much fruit. Herein is our Father glorified that we bear much fruit. 
John 15, verse 8. Number eight, springtime attitude is producing spiritual fruit. Have an attitude of continually producing spiritual fruit. Number nine, live an attitude of overcoming. We rehearse this lesson, or I do at the Days of Unleavened Bread each year, but Numbers, the 13th chapter, Numbers 13, it's an attitude of overcoming. Remember the 12 spies were sent out to the promised land and 10 of them came back with a negative report. But what was Caleb's attitude? Numbers 13 and verse 30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. So Caleb had this attitude of conquering, of overcoming, and we have to overcome ourselves, Satan, and society. And we have that song, overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the Spirit, standing on the promises of God. Sorry about that. Standing on the promises of God and uh, overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword. And we find that every one of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are told by Jesus Christ, He who overcomes, will I grant to sit on my throne or will be a pillar in the temple of my God, as he says to the Philadelphians. We are required to overcome, and we can overcome daily with God's Holy Spirit if we do. And need to have that same attitude of Caleb, one of, positive overcoming and going forward, trusting in God. John 16, verse 33, many others, but we'll just take a look at one more here. John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Attitude number nine is an attitude of overcoming. Attitude number ten is accomplishing God's work. John 4, verse 34. John 4, 24 was worshiping God in spirit and in truth, but John 4, 34, when Jesus says that his motivation, his attitude is to finish the work John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And that's Dr. Meredith's mission as well. That's his commitment, his passion, is to finish the work. God has given us a mission to perform. We have the sevenfold mission of preaching the gospel to the kingdom in the true name of Jesus Christ of preaching the end-time prophecies and the Ezekiel warning to the Israelites' peoples. Thirdly, to feed the flock and build all our members to the stature of Jesus Christ as best we can. Four, be examples to the church of God and to the world of Christ's way of life. Five, learn and practice servant leadership in all our dealings with others. Six, restore apostolic or original Christianity and all that implies. And seven, Build an atmosphere of radiant faith within God's church. Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote in a co-worker letter of August 28, 1967, and I repeat again, 
in 33 and a half years of this work, I have noticed that those who grow spiritually are those whose hearts and interests are in the work, God's work. So number 10 is an attitude of finishing the work. We need that attitude of zeal and passion for completing the mission that God has given us. So let's radiate these attitudes, the fruit of God's Holy Spirit, and review the each one of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Let's thank God through His Spirit that we can overcome. We can live, think, and act with a pure heart. Pray that you and I can grow in these godly attitudes, not just in the springtime, but all time. Number one was an attitude of humility. Two, repentance. Three, service. Four, loving God. Five, thanksgiving. Six, faith. Seven, persevering. Eight, bearing spiritual fruit. Nine, overcoming. And ten, accomplishing God's work. Mr. Armstrong wrote in a November 18th, 1974 co-worker letter, And God has given us the work to do as the very means by which we may grow spiritually so we may enter his kingdom at Christ's coming. In 47 years, I observed that only those whose hearts are fully in the work continue to overcome and grow spiritually and endure. Through the years, I, with those added for their part in the work, continued to announce the wonderful news of the coming kingdom of God and all that that message embodied. Never have we sought to get, but always to give, the good news of God's truth. So, brethren, as we look forward to the Passover, to the spring festivals, let's grow in beautiful attitudes. Let's have the mind of Christ and live by His loving, serving, spiritual attitude.